The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, I'm Rush Kapadia, Associate Editor at Barron's. Welcome to Barron's Live, Managing Your Money, Finding Value Amid Global Turmoil. Today with me is Sarah Ketterer, Chief Executive Officer of Causeway Capital Management, a newcomer on Barron's 100 Most Influential Women in Finance list that came out this weekend, and a veteran global manager. Great person to speak with during this market sell-off. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks, Reshma. So we are in the midst of a major sell-off, um, you know, and value investors typically like sell-offs in terms of bargain hunting opportunities. Talk to me a little bit about how you're thinking about what we're seeing happening in the market right now. Well, the key for us, Reshma, at Causeway is to continue to adhere to our investment process. So fundamentally, we screen thousands of stocks every week looking for those criteria you mentioned, undervaluation, but along with Companies that are in great competitive positioning, typically they have management teams capable of operationally restructuring the business and improving the earnings and the cash flow generation. But we've been hit with two successive crises. I have never seen anything like this in my career, and my career goes way back to the early 90s in investing. So we've had to be really disciplined and not stray from what we're supposed to do, which is provide our clients access to the highest quality, most undervalued companies, no matter where the market is. Mm-hmm. And that quality seems pretty important right now at a period of time where we're seeing a lot of sort of assumptions that have underpinned the market kind of come undone, right? And and um, we're seeing price, pricing pressure and inflation and all of that. So tell, tell me a little bit about, you know, the types of companies that you think are well positioned for this period. Well, there are, there are several, and then there are many who are not well positioned. And that's why we have so many analysts. We've got uh, 25 people who just do fundamental research and then supported by 10 quantitative colleagues. And the point of that is this is, I'm just trying to explain why active management can be so important at particularly at certain times in the market. And this is one of them because there are many companies who, whose trajectories in terms of their own revenue growth, their margin expansion, their earnings growth will be affected, but not nearly Right. to the extent that the market has has hit their share prices. And, and I'd say this, the epicenter of pain, the area where we're gravitating to the most, the greatest amount of undervaluation currently is Europe. Yes. And um, as you might imagine, given its proximity to the Ukrainian crisis. Yeah. And there are companies in the banking sector, in industrials, in utilities, um, insurance, consumer discretionary, technology. I mean, across the board, there are great companies to buy. And yes, as you rightly noted, this is when value investors get animated. Right, right. Well, so let's let's just step back a little bit because it's been a very difficult period for value investing. And I know you and I have had this conversation um, often in the last couple of years. But, you know, we even before this geopolitical crisis, we were at a inflection point in terms of monetary policy. Like, how have you been thinking about um, sort of the outlook for value? And then how does what we're seeing sort of amplify that? 
Well, it had been to, as you noted, a, a true deep and chilly value winter. And a lot of this we ascribe to what has been extraordinarily and historically abundant monetary policy. So, so much money being created by central banks globally. And now, of course, we have an inflation problem um, in part due to that and in part due to some serious disruption in supply chains. So with all that said, it was really hard as a value investor to please clients because the alternative to value is either something more like the market, you know, a passive core, you get everything, or growth. And they all had the benefit of of money having very little cost. So mm -hmm. think about a stock is just the present value of all the cash it can generate into perpetuity, discounted to present using some sort of discount rate. And if the lower the discount rate goes, as interest rates fall, as monetary policy becomes extremely accommodative, then investors are willing to pay more and more and more for the same stream of cash flow. In fact, that's why we saw multiples rising. So it was... um. It was like climbing up a sand dune for the value investor, very difficult to get to the top. And clients, of course, were very unhappy about that. But this is why we appreciate our institutional clients so much, because they are deliberately diversifying. They don't want all growth. Yeah, They don't want um, market exposure. They deliberately want value to ensure they're diversified in the times when value has its sharp upward spikes and outperformance. So I guess in, you, you mentioned Europe as an area that you're looking and, and I know we're still early in sort of the changes that we're seeing geopolitically, but how, I mean, they are hit very hard by inflation and energy. Um, and, and obviously, you know, there was some good happening with their economy kind of getting onto a stable state with reopening and all of that. Like, so how are you thinking through the changes that we're seeing in the last couple of weeks because of the Russia's invasion of Ukraine? Well, we started with analyzing what was happening in the financial system and whether or not the SWIFT sanctions, that messaging system that yeah. allows transactions to be facilitated, that by sanctioning Russia, what sort of impact would that have on banking systems, particularly in Europe? We looked for potential for uh, cost of risk to rise and for credit losses to be amplified associated. I mean, we started with first order effects. How many of these European companies where the share prices were collapsing actually had exposure to mm. Ukraine and Russia? And to what degree is that real demand destruction for them? What, what, to what degree do they have to have write-offs? And then, you know, second order effects, what does that mean for their business elsewhere? Where might they encounter problems? And to your point, to what degree did it amplify an, an inflation problem we were already seeing prior to the invasion? And the, the problems are out there. I won't deny it. But the market has overreacted in several cases. And that's very typical. We see mm -hmm. this often. And that's our opportunity to take advantage, even though even though headwinds may have become stronger and it'll be more difficult for many of these companies to be as profitable as we would have expected, their share prices have dropped so much further than they should have. There's still opportunity for attractive returns. Right. And that's kind of what the gutsy value investors, I guess, have to figure out. And, and yeah, yeah. Well, you either are or you aren't. I mean, we've, that's pretty much the litmus test when we interview people. If, if they, um, they look like they're going to start quaking at the knees, they won't make it.
So I guess, you know, you mentioned the financial system and it does, it does seem like there is a lot of um, concern about direct and indirect exposure to Russia. Obviously, you know, you can't sell collateral that was stock or your yacht gets seized and, you know, and all that, that, that there seems to be concerns about ripples and, and, you know, what we may see fall out. What are the indicators that you're watching? Like, what, what do you think is really important to make sure that your, your call on on the banks is, is a good one? Well, we, we look at credit spreads, for example, to make sure that um, we're not seeing some sort of large credit problem be reflected in the debt markets. We certainly listen very carefully what the companies are telling us. You never quite know what's in the asset side of the balance sheet in a bank, for example, but we create buffers. We assume a certain amount of their business is affected. I, and I'll give you an example, a, a company like Unicredit. So this is a a large Italian and German bank. They're listed in Italy, about a $30 billion market cap. The company um, the company has a 6% dividend yield and excess capital. But what's extraordinary is the share price was 16 euros in early February and dropped to 8 euros Monday, wow. <laughs> yesterday. Now, should it have halved? Is that really, is the business... If it was fairly valued at 16, let's just say that's an assumption we're making, should it be down by 50, 50%? So we don't think so. The company isn't going to have less capital. We don't see this credit losses rising. But let's say we're wrong. Even if we're wrong by a magnitude of, say, you know, they'll have some capital disturbance. It's not 50%. Mm. But this gives you some idea of the shoot first, ask questions later nature of markets. Right. And the, and the incredible inefficiency that ripples through markets, during, especially during disruptions, as we're having currently. And so um, just to, for some context, like, you know, I, I think of the European financial crisis, right, when those banks were really hit hard. I mean, are we seeing those types of levels in terms of valuation? Or how bad is it? Um, no, no. We're, we're seeing, I say we're seeing valuations akin to what we saw in March of 2020, not quite there yet, Got but it. but these banks trading at such massive discounts to their tangible book value. So that's their book value, less goodwill. That's that's rock solid. That's not mm-hmm. going to disappear in, the, in a flash. And when they get to 30, 40, 50% of tangible book, and yet they have, again, excess capital, which means they can buy back a significant portion of outstanding shares if they want to. They can um, a 6% dividend yield is very attractive, but the potential for it to be even higher, given the the cash flow generation from the business, makes you wonder. I mean, in a way, these are in much better financial shape. Right. My very talented colleague, Connor Muldoon, who runs our financials and materials research cluster, he's just adamant about this. Like, this is a company, new CEO. Um, they've during the pandemic, they all cut costs and increased their technology spend. All these banks, they become more efficient, and yet they traded valuations that are hovering around where they were at the worst of the last crisis, which of course was only two years ago. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So they're they're in better shape, and that self help definitely helps um, their their prospects, I guess. Um, so I guess you know we have a couple con- questions from from our audience, and I want to um, remind the audience if you have any questions, please um, submit them in the Q and A section. I'll try to get 
to them as we go through this. But um, we have a couple of people, Bruce, for example, is asking sort of, you know, what projections can be made about the long term economic impact of the war in Ukraine on, on Russian energy companies, for example. And then, of course, there's the question of sort of what the higher energy yeah. costs mean yeah. for the European economy. I mean, when you're sort of looking, you know, at these bargains, what types of assumptions are you making? I know you're very much a bottoms up stock picker, but help us understand your macro worldview. Well, we do own energy companies. They are European integrated oil and gas stocks only because they've lagged their US peers. So companies like BP, Total um, Energies uh, and Shell, formerly Royal Dutch Shell, because they have so much cash flow. They have we don't even need to think about where oil prices are going. So today they have so much cash flow. And what we know about the commodity is it's going to be volatile. There may be a, a rapprochement, which I kind of doubt, but it's possible between Russia and Ukraine in the next several weeks, oil prices will fall sharply. You don't necessarily want to go long energy um, on the commodity price. You want to do it when the share prices of the stocks are so low, they discount a very low, very low oil and gas prices. And then you've got that that margin of safety, which we like to see. Mm. But, but right now in Europe, you can get because, I mean, I wouldn't touch anything in Russia because our, our clients are slowly but surely asking us to purge all those stocks. And yeah. it will be a pariah market. It's already been excised out of the MSCI Emerging Market Index. But you could get, say, a European utility, um, another Italian listed company. This one's called Enel, $57 billion market cap, mm-hmm. 7% dividend yield. But what do you like about it? It's the largest private renewable energy operator in the world. So they've got electricity, they have gas, and then a big renewables business. So you kind of get both. You get their yeah. ability to um, to take advantage of this scarcity and make sure that they are supplying their customers. But what will need to be spent in renewables in order to create a level of energy independence boggles the mind. Yeah, yeah. So there's, you know, I this is sort of a contrarian view, but it's a couple of people have mentioned it lately, and I'm wondering what you think about it. Um, so there is this viewpoint that because of what we're seeing um, on the commodity front and the energy front, that we could actually see a rollback in some of the climate related policies. You know, China, for example, is restarting its coal plants to some extent because it's trying to meet its growth targets. Um, we're obviously seeing some backlash here because of um, sustainability plans that kind of created some of the shortages. I mean, like, what is your what is your viewpoint on that? Like, do you think that we do see a, a step back on sort of the renewable sustainable push? Um, I don't. I, I believe that green policies are still very central to the Biden administration, and they're critical for Europe, Australia, Canada, their number of mm. countries, and even China, interestingly, unlike Russia, has made tremendous effort to move toward greening its economy. Now they have a long, the bar was low, right? To the degree, I mean, think about who controls the solar industry. Where do those panels come from? Where's that, where is that capital expenditure occurring? It's in China, not to mention electric vehicles where they're going to have a a fleet that far surpasses anywhere else. So we're renewables are, my view is in that my teammates agree with me. This is, this war between Russia and Ukraine has only increased, maybe by a, a large magnitude, the demand and the urgency for more renewables spend 
and the proliferation of renewably generated electricity. Mm, interesting. So you mentioned China, which I, you know, we've talked about at length. Um, so, you know, what is your position on China? Because right now, in in a way, you know, it's it's at least on the monetary side, it's going in a different direction than the rest of the world. It had a brutal yeah. uh, mm -hmm. 2021. Um, so, you know, how what are you how are you thinking about China? Well, China was a real disappointment last year and the economy is slowing, but um, the slowing economy in China and the serious problems that occur in their, that are, that exist within their property sector may crimp China's ability to aid Russia, which in turn may be quite useful in, in ending this, mm -hmm. this just horrible, horrible situation between Russia and Ukraine. So there are, there's a silver lining to China's slowing. The stocks and many stocks in China have had a reset downward, so there are greater bargains. But what's what China has, the rest of the world has less of, is it's still in the midst of a COVID lockdown. Yeah, which means that travel, leisure, hospitality, uh, stocks like that, you know, phenomenally Hong Kong listed, Western controlled and owned, Sands China, that operates casinos in Macau, like there, there's still so much upside there because it's. The country hasn't reopened mm -hmm. and this free flow of travel, which was so important for so many different travel related businesses. Yes, of course, energy prices are much higher, which does put a crimp on travel. But, but it, what puts a huge crimp on it is having closed borders or, or intolerably long quarantines. And so Hong Kong, China's collectively, their reopening is something we can look forward to which should, for part of the Chinese market, add a real earnings push upward. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that reopening play is there. And I think it, it's a little, it's, I guess, in the shadows at this point in time. Um, you mentioned, you know, Russia is being treated as a pariah. I mean, there's there's obviously been a lot of angst about U.S.-China relations and what could come out of this conflict and, and, and how people might think about China differently. I, I'm wondering, are you getting that sort of pushback from your own investors about investing in China these days? We're not. There there were some rumblings last year with the tremendous amount of regulatory increase we saw out of yes. China, the for-profit education stocks becoming, at a stroke of a pen, non-profit. I mean, some pretty severe takings is how I would describe it, of of value from shareholders. So that scared some clients, but China's market is so large and has become so important on the world stage. You know, barring China doing something as horrific as what Russia is doing now, say for example, invading Taiwan, mm -hmm. I think China will continue to be a very important market for, for investors globally. Yeah, yeah, like a source of diversification, I guess. Um, so, you know, I, I, Walsh here is asking what, what your five to 10 year outlook is for emerging markets in general, versus, as well as other sort of regions of the world, Europe, and then sort of um, the US. I mean, can it talk me through sort of how you're thinking about the opportunities globally um, by pockets of regions? The, um, emerging markets, you take more risk. And in exchange, you're supposed to get more return. And that relationship broke down partially the last six to eight years, but we think it will be reestablished. And if, you, if you're willing to make that trade-off, take more risk as a more political, socioeconomic, geopolitical, whatever type of risk you'd like, there's more of it there. Mm -hmm. But in places where 
there is, uh, say, population growth. And this is where China gets to be sort of a, uh, a conundrum because aging population and you know, barring huge productivity increases through automation or some other technological breakthrough, you know, it is the largest piece of emerging markets, yeah. some 35% in indices. But it has this sort of mixed bag in terms of growth. I, we like what's going on in the private sector. As long, as long as it's not overly inhibited by regulation, we still think we'll see quite a bit of growth out of the Chinese market. It just won't necessarily be the easy kind of mass migration from rural to urban areas that we saw in the past and in, in, fueled by population growth. So that that it, it it's a really good question because it, this requires quite a bit more analysis. But where we see great companies operating, and even a smaller place like Taiwan, assuming it's not mm -hmm. trampled by its neighbor, um, has good upside potential. South Korea, the companies there are areas like electronics, semiconductors, uh, sophisticated battery cell materials, like just fantastic. So that we often see more more sustainable growth out of Asia than we do, say, Latin America. I mean, one area of the whole emerging market basket that's really, I'd say, under the greatest amount of scrutiny now is Central and Eastern Europe. Oh, and yeah. that's because of what Russia's doing. So hard to say, but should be more growth, you take higher risk, should get higher returns as a result. And, yeah. um, and then the rest of the world, it really, this has a lot to do. You think about what drives stock markets is liquidity and it's earnings and the combination mm -hmm. of those two. And if liquidity is being reined in by all central banks generally, barring China, as you noted, then that's a headwind. Uh, yeah. I know there are investors who think they should get 20% a year from their stocks. That's not realistic. What's realistic mm -hmm. is getting some sort of return in excess of the risk-free rate that's the norm for equities yeah we've all we've all sort of overindulged with such massive amount of money creation and, and and resulting asset price inflation so a more sobering environment ahead is our expectation you know there's still return but it may not be easy to get it across indices rather through again i'm a huge believer in active management through um, you know, a professional team looking for opportunities that market has misjudged. Yeah, no, that that makes sense. Um, so what, you know, Hal and a couple other people have asked about sort of currency risk right now. Um, yeah. you know, especially for the euro, if you're looking in Europe, how how do you do you guys hedge? What you know, what is the way you think about currency? Well, currencies are very very hard to gauge, but the the key is in in and. The kind of valuation work that we do requires an underlying sensitivity analysis. We ask ourselves the question, what are the drivers of, of revenue and earnings growth and how can we flex them? And if currency is important and it has an impact on the company's underlying earnings of significance, we'll look at different scenarios so that we're reasonably comfortable with what could happen. If currencies make very sharp movements we didn't anticipate, we have to make sure we incorporate that in our price target. So we work with two-year price targets, looking out as far out into the future as we can do confidently. But as for hedging, we will hedge if a client asks us to hedge or gives us a hedge benchmark. But generally, we find the currencies move in cycles. Mm -hmm. And as long as we're well diversified and, and rely heavily on a multi-factor risk model, our own internal proprietary model, which incorporates currency risk, that we we tend to see currencies being a very mild 
part of the total return attribution. Most of what we do, whether we outperform or underperform, is a function of stock selection, not currency selection. Mm, yeah, good point. So we have several, and maybe this is a sign of the times, so we have several questions. Don, Joel, Amanda, they all ask about cash positions yeah. and whether it's, you know, this is a good time to have some cash on hand, dry powder, um, a buffer for whatever you want to call it. How, how do you think about that? Well, I think about cash as it's one thing to sell your winners, but to sit on cash means you have to make a second as as critical a decision, which is when to go back in. So that timing or what's called tactical investing is very hard to do. And we much prefer to keep cash positions very low and keep our clients fully invested. That makes and, sense. Um, and I, I recommend that only because equity markets tend to move with GDP and GDP tends to move up. Yes, there are cycles, but if, even if you get out at the top of one, you've got to get back in and that's really hard to do. And if you miss those moments when markets anticipate, when stock markets anticipate economic recovery, they really move. Mm -hmm. And if you're not back in the market, then you've pretty much shot yourself in the head. Yeah. So uh, just, just a handful of days that really make the markets returns, right? Like over a long period of time. It, so. It's it's true. And I think that's really true of what we do in value investing. You just have to be, you have to be in the market when those times occur. So, I mean, I think that we, we have a lot of questions. Lee, for example, is asking how long you give your picks before you decide you were wrong. And, and I was going to ask you about, especially given the current environment, like how, do, what are you doing to make sure you avoid value traps? Like what's especially important right now where yeah. there's changing assumptions? Well, one of our single most important criteria, the management teams themselves. This is one of the reasons why we've tended to be underweight the Japanese market versus the benchmarks for years and years. In fact, from the beginning, we began at uh, calls. We began in 2001, and our team was together prior. But it's really hard for us to to get excited about a market that has such, um, I just say, slow or low levels of corporate governance that don't don't have that urgency. We need management teams who are they're sharing our clients' pain or joy. Like they're literally, I've got skin in the game. They're they own equity. They are, they're paid in large part due to how well they deliver for shareholders and some sort of total shareholder return concept. Those are almost always the most um, effective companies and making sure that we don't end up in, in situations where managements are disconnected from the outcome for shareholders. That's a value trap. And our mm -hmm. team is acutely aware of avoiding them. Mm, that's great. That's great. So, I mean, I, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your career. I mean, it's International Women's Day and you are on our, our, our list of 100 most powerful, influential women in finance. And and I guess, I, you know, you started your own firm. I, I'm just kind of curious, like if there was um, any advice that you would have given your younger self, your younger self as an investor, what would it be? What, 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 what do you think would have helped out if you had known earlier? Oh, she was so impatient. Uh, <laughs> I think that my older self has realized my younger self didn't have a sense of time. Like the, what makes me valuable, I believe, to my younger colleagues, and this is true of my business partner, Harry Harford, is we've seen so much. We've lived through so many market cycles. We, it's not that we studied them, we lived them. And my younger self was very sort of flip about history. History is important. 
So I always advise younger people, read everything you can. It's not that it's any, the situation will repeat itself exactly, but you just develop confidence as an investor knowing that we've been in situations like this before and we will come out of them. Mm-hmm. And that's, I mean, that's good given what we're going through. I guess, I, you know, I was going to ask you, I, I sort of feel like the, the landscape has really changed, obviously, for obvious reasons in the last couple of weeks. But when you're thinking about the major risks, what, what are you most worried about? And what are sort of the indicators, to, or the gut checks to see how those risks are sort of moving? Well, the biggest one is some sort of escalation in uh, Russia versus NATO and mm-hmm. I mean, the, the the biggest one of all is just too horrific to think about it, some sort of nuclear right. confrontation. So let's check, assume that doesn't happen, because then all bets are off. But the next is just the sort of splintering of Europe. Europe's now cohesive, and, and as my colleagues have reminded me, maybe this is an opportunity for Europe finally to get that fiscal uni- union it was sort of lacking, especially in the Eurozone. But this cohesion is important, and if it turns out that, say, Germany decides to back down and uh, maybe other countries do. Germany and Italy are most dependent on Russian and Ukrainian, well, Russian oil and gas. And then there's Ukrainian exports, which are very largely agricultural focused. We can't have a splintering of Europe if this occurs. This has terrible ramifications. It means we have have an autocrat on the loose. We potentially have... uh, much more disruption ahead, more threats to Eastern European countries. I don't, that will be bad for markets and it'll certainly cast a pall over them for a long time to come. What we need is stability and a greater level of certainty and then just an economic recovery. We don't want to go crashing into recession. That would be very problematic. Mm-hmm. So I guess, you know, um, Lee's asking, you know, how long do you actually give a pick until you decide that it's wrong? And and I guess I, I want to sort of add to that. Given this level of uncertainty that you just sort of painted out, you don't really know which of these scenarios is going to come through. Are you sort of being more tactical, I guess, in in, in the way you're positioning your portfolio? We're, we, we, we think about risk and return as a trade-off. So we're, we took a lot of risk off the portfolio in January. We had this huge run from November. We were still paring back cyclicality risk, volatility risk in February. And then we had this invasion and that changed everything. So now we've, we've been adding back cyclicality volatility risk because our clients are going to get paid for it. I mean, I thought that bank example I gave you, I, I, I just can't get over the fact the stock prices have shouldn't be anywhere near there. There's so much upside potential in these higher beta, um, higher risk stocks. It doesn't mean they're any less quality companies. That's just the portion of the market they occupy. So, so we'll, we'll take risk now, but when share prices recover and, and they, when they recover and they will, that's when we'll be car- pairing risk back again. Sorry. You have to think about it. You just don't want to take that type of risk when the outside potential doesn't warrant it. Mm-hmm. So, I, I mean, you are largely an international investor, but I'm, I'm kind of curious, you know, obviously um, the U.S. has sort of trumped all other markets for a good long period of time. I mean, how are you thinking about your, the U.S. market at this point in time? Yeah, the, we work from a bottom-up process, so all stocks have to compete with each other globally. And there's so, so, the U.S. market is so broad and so deep. It's no surprise that in a global portfolio, it, plays a very large part, but the deepest, most undervalued stocks, in other words, the greatest undervaluation is clearly in 
in Europe right now. And, mm-hmm. and I wouldn't have said that a few months ago, yeah. but, but this horrific crisis in Ukraine has brought about a, uh, a I'd say, sell first, ask questions later type mentality. Yeah, yeah. It seems like we haven't, I guess we, I mean, we saw that obviously during the pandemic, but it's a different nature to this, this sell off, right? And so it's, I imagine it's different types of companies that are bearing the brunt of it. Yeah, you know, bizarrely, there are lots of similarities between the stocks that collapsed in uh, March of 2020 in the sort of lowest point uh, due to COVID and what we're seeing today, because think about travel with oil prices at $120 a barrel and, and maybe going higher. It's, Again, investors are very nervous. We just, this is a short-term situation in our view, and you want to buy the companies that are trading at such low valuations that all they have to see is some partial recovery for our clients to get paid handsomely. Mm, That's great. Um, So my one last question will be, um, given the changes that we've sort of, well, I guess given that chilly winter you talked about for value investors, and, and there seems to be a little bit of a change in sort of how people think about value. What would you tell to younger value investors? Like what, you know, what what's a little bit different than what you would have learned um, when you were starting out in your career as a value yeah. investor? I, I knew monetary policy was important. I just never anticipated the shifts and they will they will continue to evolve. So just be 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 very cognizant of who is providing the liquidity and what their goals are, because that will have a very great impact on how your stocks perform. And then make sure you really know your management team well, because they're your proxy. They're the ones driving the business. And without, if they can't, if they can't execute, then your investment thesis isn't going to work. Mm, that's great. That's great. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. Um, that's all the time we have for today. Um, thank you to the audience for tuning in. Sarah, you're always great. Um, and I appreciate you taking the time out today. Uh, we hope you listen to our next episode tomorrow. Alessandra Molito from Market Watch will speak with Teresa Gilarducci, Director of the Schwartz Center for Economic Policy Analysis, about how the pandemic has affected retirement savers. Thank you for listening. Be well and have a nice day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.